radioactive nuclear waste. There's no way to neutralize it, and no safe way to store it for the thousands of years it will be deadly to human life. But the nuclear industry keeps pretending there is. The target of the places where they want to dump this stuff? Almost invariably, indigenous lands, where the nukesters think they can get away with it. In Ontario in Canada, an ill-advised nuclear waste dump is being planned as a giant mound above ground next to the Ottawa River, and no consent for its construction has been asked or given from ten local First Nations people, let alone downstream communities, all of whom object to this placement. This dump would drain directly into wetlands that drain directly into the Ottawa River, which is adjacent. And as a genuine expert explains... The Ottawa River flows down through the nation's capital, Ottawa, and also continues on its way down to Montreal, where it joins the St. Lawrence River. So all of the downstream population in Quebec is going to suffer the consequences of any leakage that occurs. Consequently, many of the municipalities, over 140 municipalities on the Quebec side of the border especially, have expressed opposition to this particular facility. And that's not all. Well, when Dr. Gordon Edwards, physicist, nuclear consultant, president and co-founder of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, points out the proposed ultimate destination of this incompetently stored radioactive nuclear waste and how it will directly impact millions of unsuspecting citizens in at least two countries, you catch yet another glimpse of that deadly, awful, dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away, so I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Dr. Gordon Edwards, president and co-founder of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, on current plans being railroaded through in Canada to site a dump for radioactive nuclear waste at Chalk River in Ontario. He also tells us about some alternative ideas regarding the waste that are not yet being considered by those in power, but should be. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story with Linda Pence Gunter, and more honest nuclear information than we're going to hear on the U.S. presidential campaign trail anytime soon, if ever. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. There was a nuclear explosion of sorts on Capitol Hill last week, after the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Republican Representative Mike Turner of Ohio, 
ignited a firestorm when he issued a cryptic statement announcing that the panel had, quote, information concerning a serious national security threat. While Turner gave no further details, it was later reported by news outlets, citing unnamed sources, to involve Russia's potential deployment of nuclear anti-satellite weapons in space. What followed was nuclear spin and counterspin, as pundits on all sides of the issue came out in their full, confusing glory. Turner's cryptic announcement came on Wednesday, February 14th. On Thursday, the White House confirmed that the national security threat flagged by the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee is related to, quote, an anti-satellite capability that Russia is developing. But the White House sought to soothe concerns about the danger it presents to the United States. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said, this is not an active capability that's been deployed, and continued, there is no immediate threat to anyone's safety. We're not talking about a weapon that can be used to attack human beings or cause physical destruction on Earth. We'll get to that claim in a moment. Articles immediately cascaded through the mainstream media on how Russia could use space nukes to cripple the United States and the world in the belief that any nuclear weapon in space by the Russians would target our satellite systems. There are more than 5,500 known satellites orbiting the Earth, more than 3,500 of them American, which are key to our modern society, carrying Internet signals, communications, and global positioning systems. Knocking out these satellites with a nuclear explosion would ground drones, cut off troops, even blind an entire nation to a first-strike attack. But as regular listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat will know, there is another threat, and that is from the electromagnetic pulse that would be set off by even a single nuclear detonation in space. I point your attention to Nuclear Hot Seat number 626, where we interviewed Dr. Stephen Starr on Electromagnetic Pulse, a book he's recently written about it, and what the actual risks are which include totally frying the electric grid of the United States in a billionth of a second. A Dr. Bledon Bowen, associate professor at the University of Leicester in England, who specializes in outer space, international relations, and warfare, said the lack of detail was no reason to panic. It's so vague and cryptic, she said, it could be a number of different things. Everyone needs to calm down about this. But later said... When you detonate a nuclear weapon in space, there is an electromagnetic pulse which fries the electrical circuits of anything that's unshielded within a few thousand kilometers radius. The pulse may also knock out power grids on Earth if the bomb is detonated above or near populated areas. After that, you have the radiation that the bomb would generate, and over time, it would fry the electrical circuits of satellites in the wider parts of Earth's orbit. And now even the GOP is creating a backlash towards Republican Mike Turner, who set off this firestorm. Republican Andy Oglis of Texas requested that the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, open an inquiry into Turner, saying that his revealing of the threat, quote, was done with reckless disregard, and that in hindsight, it's clear the intent was not, quote, to ensure the safety of the country, but rather to ensure additional funding for Ukraine and the passage of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Far-right Representative Matt Gates, a Republican from Florida, said Turner was gaslighting the country 
adding that he's worried that he was motivated less by intelligence concerns and more by wanting to send $60 billion to Ukraine. And down the rabbit hole it goes, with more pundits weighing in every day. Meanwhile, in a possibly, if not probably, related story, the Pentagon has confirmed that six satellites, including one with advanced missile tracking technology, the Pentagon confirmed that six satellites, including one with advanced missile tracking technology, were launched into orbit on Wednesday, February 14, a day after alarming U.S. intel revealed by House Intelligence Chairman Mike Turner sent shockwaves through the Beltway with a cryptic threat against U.S. national security. As of recording this program, the he-said-she-said potential for overreaction has not yet resulted in the world being blown up. To be continued, more shoes are dropping, or should that be ankle bracelets, as further indictments are handed down in the Ohio nuclear power scandal. Here's Linda Penn-Scunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. It was called likely the largest bribery money laundering scheme ever perpetrated against the people of the state of Ohio. And the shoes are still dropping, or should that be ankle monitors, because these latter currently adorn the lower legs of the latest to be indicted for their roles in a scheme that saw First Energy hand over $61 million in bribes to Ohio politicians and their co-conspirators to secure favorable legislation. That bill, known as HB6, guaranteed a $1.3 billion bailout to First Energy in order to keep open its two failing Ohio nuclear power plants, Davis Bessie and Perry, along with two struggling coal plants. The nuclear portion of the bill has since been rescinded, but Ohio consumers are still paying to prop up those aging coal plants to the tune of half a million dollars a day amounting to an extra $1.50 a month on every ratepayer's electric bill. The $61 million bribery plot was the mastermind of then-Speaker of the Ohio House, Larry Householder, who is now a household name in Ohio for all the wrong reasons, and was sentenced last June to 20 years in prison for his part in the conspiracy. GOP Chairman Matt Borges was also found guilty of racketeering conspiracy and was sentenced to five years in federal prison. Both men say they will appeal. But in those earlier trials, First Energy was described as a company just looking for someone to bribe them. They found willing accomplices among politicians, especially Householder, and also in the person of then-Ohio Public Utilities Commission Chairman Sam Randazzo. So on February 12th, indictments were handed down to Randazzo and the two First Energy executives who corrupted him former CEO Chuck Jones, and former Senior Vice President of External Affairs Michael Dowling. Their list of crimes, including a collective 27 felonies, was announced at a press conference by Ohio Attorney General David Yost, but he had to indict the three accused in absentia. With more than a hint of resignation in his voice, Yost said that the counsel representing these men assured us that they would turn themselves in this morning at 8.30 a.m. at the Summit County Jail. They did not fulfill that promise, and I suppose I am unsurprised that they would not keep this promise either. However, Jones, Dowling and Randazzo evidently decided it would not be such a good idea to go on the lam, and all three did appear the next day, rather sour-faced and slightly sinister-looking, to face arraignment in a courtroom scene that could have been cast in Hollywood, 
although perhaps with more exciting attorneys. All three, of course, pled not guilty. Perhaps in light of their Monday morning no-show, the court did not lift the pre-arraignment bonds of $100,000 each, nor the order for Dowling and Randazzo to continue wearing GPS ankle monitors. Jones can carry his due to medical reasons. Randazzo was restricted to movement within three counties, while Dowling was forbidden from leaving the state. Jones was viewed as the greatest flight risk and was forbidden, for now, from returning to his Florida home, lest he flee to, of all places, Cuba. Householder, somewhat of a gangster lookalike himself, was described during his trial as the quintessential mob boss directing the criminal enterprise from the shadows and using his casket carriers to execute the scheme. The mainstream national press has scarcely reported any of this. Maybe they view it as a local story, but this kind of nuclear corruption has also occurred in South Carolina and Illinois, culminating in indictments and prison sentences. It's possible we could yet see something similar emerge in Georgia, as rates there soar to pay for the two late and over-budget Vogel reactors, the second of which just started fissioning last week. Why does the nuclear industry find itself mired in these kinds of criminal conspiracies? Because it has no chance of standing on its own feet financially any longer, with a cheaper, faster, more job-friendly renewable energy industry leaving it behind in a cloud of radioactive dust. That has, in turn, put pressure on politicians to make things right for their corporate nuclear friends, something Senator Joe Manchin and others are currently working hard to do on Capitol Hill. So there may yet be more shoes to drop, and it's going to be very interesting to see who's wearing them. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. Also in Ohio, advocacy groups have united to demand action on radioactive contamination in Pike County. A community meeting featuring discussions led by Piketon Residents for Environmental Safety and Security, or PRESS, and the National Nuclear Workers for Justice and Don't Dump on Us will take place on Sunday, March 3rd. The meeting aims to provide residents with updates on recent radioactive testing samples in the area. Notably, Dr. Michael Ketterer, Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Northern Arizona University, will share insights gleaned from recent testing efforts. Dr. Ketterer is known for his pivotal role in uncovering contamination at Zahn's Corner Middle School in Pike County. This coalition of advocacy groups are demanding action from elected officials to include all communities affected by the gaseous diffusion plants, such as the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in Piketon, Include those who were affected by the radiation in the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, or RECA, Downwinder Program, which is currently up for consideration by the House after being passed by the Senate. RECA will expire in July of this year unless this new bill, which includes both an extension and an expansion of it, is passed. So action on it is considered urgent. And now for more on radiation exposure here in the United States, here's this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None that's out a week. Hey, fun lovers and action seekers. Now you can not only get propagandized and toxed by nuclear, you get to pay for the privilege. 
Under the guise of a fun educational experience, Boeing has been offering a series of 12 Saturday morning hikes and instruction at the Santa Susana Field Lab. You know, that former rocket dying rocket testing site only 30 miles from downtown Los Angeles in Simi Valley, the place that had a nuclear meltdown in an unshielded nuclear reactor back in the 1950s that spewed radioactive particles into the air and onto the site without a warning to the public. They also dumped radioactive waste into burn pits and re-released radioactive particles into the air in the smoke from the massive Woolsey fire in 2018. Yes, that Santa Susana Field Lab, that radioactive toxic landmine of a site, which Boeing is fighting to not have to clean up to agreed-upon standards. Now, in conjunction with the California Department of Parks and Recreation and the Foundation for the Preservation of the Santa Susana Mountains, they are offering a series of 12 sessions, which all include trekking around the Santa Susana Field Lab site. Participants get to learn about Birds of Simi Valley, plants, archaeology, even a third-grade field trip program. But nothing, nothing, not once do they mention the site's nuclear past, the toxic waste that still exists on site, and the ongoing radiation contamination. Just the thing to expose eight-year-olds to. And it's not even a free program. You have to pay $50 to attend the series, or $15 a session on a drop-in basis. What a deal. Back on Earth Day in 2019, protesters organized by the group Parents Against the Santa Susana Field Lab succeeded in stopping Boeing's Earth Day hikes on the site. Now, with this series of so-called naturalist trainings, rebranding at its most heinous, with that series more than half completed, the parents group is getting word out about the risks of attendees being exposed to toxic chemicals, heavy metals, and radionuclides on the site. This is just another one of Boeing's greenwashing ploys. And that is why, once again, Boeing and now your nuke-blind enablers at the California Department of Parks and Recreation and the Foundation for Preservation of the Santa Susana Mountains, all of you are this week's Nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Over to Japan, where on February 7, a leak of contaminated water was discovered from a pipe connected to a cesium adsorption device at the disaster site of the damaged Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The leak has been stopped, but Tokyo Electric Power Company the owner-operators of the site, estimates that about 5.5 tons of radioactive water leaked from the pipe, and that water may contain significant amount of radioactive materials such as cesium and strontium. TEPCO went on to say that there is a possibility that water from this pipe leaked into the soil through gaps between metal plates underneath the leakage point. Meanwhile, TEPCO has completed the release of the third batch of radioactive tritium-contaminated wastewater from the Fukushima disaster, bringing the total to 23,400 tons that they have sent into the Pacific Ocean. TEPCO plans a fourth release by the end of March 2024, but that would only empty about 10 of the approximately 1,000 storage units at the Fukushima plant that contain this radioactive water. That's because the wastewater is continuously produced by pouring off 
the mountain at the back of the facility and running through the contaminated remains. As to what to do about the water, the South Korean daily publication Hank Yorith spoke with Tatsujiro Suzuki, vice director of the Research Center for Nuclear Weapons Abolition at Nagasaki University. He spoke about the release of the contaminated water from Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant and said, the Japanese government needs to immediately cease dumping contaminated water into the ocean and establish an independent oversight entity that can be trusted. It is important to realize that this is more than just a scientific or technological matter. Without public trust in the process, it doesn't matter how much data TEPCO throws at the people. The public just becomes more distrustful. Suzuki went on to talk about ALPS, the Advanced Liquid Processing System, a process for removing radioactive material from water that is not capable of removing tritium. Of this ALPS process, he said, this is something that's never been done before. And it's important to note that ALPS-treated water coming out of the Fukushima power plant is different from the wastewater that normally comes out of a nuclear power plant. Fukushima's water has been treated so that technically the amount of radioactive nuclides fall below regulatory standards. However, it still contains radionuclides such as cesium, strontium, and iodine. And if released into the ocean for the next 30 to 40 years, we don't know how that will impact the ocean's ecology and marine life. He further called the Fukushima release a transboundary and transgenerational event. There are monthly protest vigils being held at Japanese embassies around the world, and one of them will take place in London on Friday, February 23rd, starting at 11 a.m. According to organizers, this is meant as a visible and vocal stand against the water release, and they invite concerned individuals in civil society around the world, especially if there is a Japanese embassy nearby, to form their own protest and stand in unity with the people of Japan. In other Japanese nuclear news, Tohoku Electric Power Company is set to restart the number two reactor at its Anagawa nuclear power plant in or around September. Anagawa is 87 kilometers, or about 54 miles, away from Fukushima. Reactivation of the reactor has been put off due to delays for fire safety improvements at the plant. Tohoku Electric decided to restart the reactor because all such works are expected to be completed in June. If the plan goes ahead, it will be the first reactor in eastern Japan to be restarted since the nuclear triple meltdown disaster at Fukushima's nuclear power plants following the Great East Japan earthquake in 2011. There will be much more on Japan, nuclear reactors and restarts, and earthquakes on this year's Voices from Japan episode coming up in two weeks. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I know that you care about getting honest nuclear news, and that's what we set out to provide here at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. Verifiable nuclear information that's been sourced, vetted, checked, and footnoted. Plus, interviews with people who are genuine experts on various aspects of the nuclear industry and its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future. We also tell you about people on the front lines of activism around the world, their challenges, their triumphs, and how you can help. We get underneath the manicured exterior of mainstream media's nuclear stories to provide context and continuity. 
because we want you to understand what the issues are, what we are up against, and what any of us can do about it. But this show cannot survive without your support. So if you're grateful for the information you receive from Nuclear Hot Seat, now is the time to help us out. We run on donations, and right now our expenses are far outstripping what we've been sent. So if you've ever thought that donating to Nuclear Hot Seat is a good idea, but you haven't done it yet, now is the exact right time to start. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means that your donation is tax-deductible, and we make it easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the red Donate button. Or if you prefer, you can send directly via Zelle to NuclearHotSeat.com. No amount is too small, no amount is too large, so don't wait. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com to donate now and help us keep our nuclear news online and flowing out to you. Whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here is this week's featured interview. Got radioactive nuclear waste? Of course we do. Any country with nuclear reactors has it, with no way to neutralize it and no way to safely store it for as long as it's radioactive, which can be thousands of years or, in human lifespan, forever. So what's being done about it? And how safe are those solutions? Well, that's what this week's guest will be sharing with you in no uncertain terms. Dr. Gordon Edwards is a mathematician, physicist, nuclear consultant, and president and co-founder of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, a not-for-profit corporation established in 1975. He has served as a consultant on nuclear issues for governmental and non-governmental bodies for over 45 years and been accepted as an expert witness by U.S. and Canadian courts and tribunals. He is frequently invited to testify before provincial and federal bodies and to give major addresses in various countries. He explains complex nuclear matters in a way that is easy to understand, and I'm deeply grateful that he will be doing that for us today. I spoke with Dr. Gordon Edwards on February 12, 2024. Dr. Gordon Edwards, it is always a pleasure and an education to speak with you on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you, Libby. It's certainly the case for me, too. I love it. The Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, or CNSC, last month gave approval for a massive waste dump to be built at the Chalk River, which has raised an enormous amount of opposition. Let's start with just touching upon the history of the Chalk River site and its importance in nuclear matters. Well, Chalk River plays an important role. It was part of the Manhattan Project originally. In fact, the permission to build the Chalk River Nuclear Laboratories was made in Washington, D.C. in 1944. And the purpose was to actually produce the world's first heavy water reactors to produce plutonium for bombs, to demonstrate the utility of producing plutonium for bombs. And for 20 years after World War II, Canada actually sold not only a lot of uranium to the United States for bombs, but also plutonium. 250 kilograms of plutonium was sold to the American military for use in nuclear weapons. So at Chalk River, it was a very secretive establishment, and it even had a plutonium reprocessing plant and a second reprocessing plant 
to produce and separate plutonium, the very first samples of plutonium that the British received months before they exploded their first atomic bomb came from Chalk River. So Chalk River has played a key role in not only peaceful nuclear power, but also in the military applications. Of course, people will remember that in 1974, India exploded its first atomic bomb using a copy of a Chalk River reactor that was given to them as a gift by the Canadian government. So the result of all this is that the Chalk River site is very heavily contaminated with a lot of radioactive waste materials, 21 tanks of liquid waste, five or six different waste areas of intermediate and and high-level waste. They even were the uh, remains of two reactors accidents that took place in 1952 and 1958. The world's first nuclear meltdown took place at Chalk River in 1952 involving the NRX reactor. So we've had a long and checkered history. Because of complaints about the extreme contamination at Chalk River, the government of Canada initiated a program called the Nuclear Waste Legacy Liabilities Program to clean up this waste. And in 2015, they hired a consortium of multinational corporations to carry out this work. And they decided to build a huge waste dump for low-level waste, which is seven stories high and which covers the area of 70 NHL hockey rinks and which is right beside the Ottawa River, one kilometer from the Ottawa River, which feeds down to the St. Lawrence and which provides drinking water for over 10 million people. So this is why there's a lot of complaint about this particular facility. What has most recently been proposed and approved? And what are the issues that local residents and many others are concerned about? Well, there's two classes of people who are concerned here, the Indigenous and the non-Indigenous. The Indigenous people are the Algonquins. And the Algonquins, there are 11 Algonquin communities, and 10 of those 11 have expressed strong opposition to this waste dump because it affects the sacred sites of theirs, and it affects the Ottawa River, which is uh, their sacred river. Of course, the Ottawa River flows down through the nation's capital, Ottawa, and also continues on its way down to Montreal, where it joins the St. Lawrence River. So all of the downstream population in Quebec is going to suffer the consequences of any leakage that occurs. Consequently, many of the municipalities, over 140 municipalities on the Quebec side of the border especially, have expressed opposition to this particular facility, which I must emphasize, this is not just a temporary facility, but it's intended to be a permanent facility, in other words, eternal. And yet, many of the radioactive materials going into this particular facility have half-lives. In fact, 19 of the 29 radionuclides listed in the inventory have half-lives of more than 1,000 years. Half-life means that's how long it takes for half of the material to go away. If you wait 10 half-lives, you're talking about 10,000 years, more than 10,000 years. Meanwhile, 12 of those 19 have half-lives of 100,000 years and more. So we're talking really about millions of years. They're building basically what amounts to an earthen mound, which is essentially a glorified landfill on the surface, right beside the Ottawa River, on a height of land that drains into a wetland that drains into the Ottawa River. So all of this material is ultimately destined, if it leaks, it's going to leak into the Ottawa River. And that is basically the complaint. Why choose such a terrible site? 
for this waste. We believe it's just simply a matter of convenience. The industry, especially this consortium of multinationals, they say, we want to clear the area so that we can build more facilities. Let's just shove the stuff off, the waste that is, let's just shove the waste off to the perimeter of the property. Unfortunately, the perimeter of the property happens to be the uh, Ottawa River. And right across on the other side of the Ottawa River is the province of Quebec. This is why Quebec municipalities in particular have been the most strongly opposed to this. There's another aspect to this, and that is with the long-lived radioactivity. And we're talking about 19 different radionuclides that are contained in this waste. On-site wastewater treatment is only planned to be continued for 30 years. And after that, it's up to just whatever the liner is that is holding that material in place and the facility design to contain the mound's contents. How secure is that given the thousands of years that the radioactive material is going to be present? Well, it seems ludicrous, really, when you think about the pyramids of Egypt being 5,000 years old and this material on an earthen mound is supposed to be kept out of the environment for far longer than that, for hundreds of thousands of years. It seems that the membranes that they're talking about, very fancy membranes which are intended to prevent leakage for long periods of time, they don't anticipate that those will last more than a thousand years at the outside. And we doubt that it'll last that long because they're putting radioactive waste. Some of the radioactive waste they're putting in there, they call it low level, but actually it's so radioactive. If anybody knows what cobalt 60 is, cobalt 60 is one of the most intense gamma emitting radionuclides that we know, and it's totally man-made. And these cobalt 60 sources are sealed. They have to be shielded to protect the workers. The workers would get a lethal dose of radiation if they just came in direct contact with cobalt-60. So 99% of the initial radioactivity in the mound is going to be cobalt-60. And none of this stuff is actually uh, cleaning up the Chalk River site. This is actually waste from commercial vendors of cobalt-60 around the world, both in Canada and overseas. And this waste is being brought into Chalk River for burial in this waste mound. So why should the people of the Ottawa Valley be exposed to commercial waste, which the commercial owners are unable to look after? Meanwhile, the Algonquins, who have traditionally lived there for many, many thousands of years, and who really know what thousands of years means, so Canada hasn't even existed that long, they are completely opposed to this. They say there's no way that you should dump your garbage where you draw your water. And there's no way that you should make a permanent waste dump beside our sacred land. Even the, the site of the Chalk River Laboratories is really Algonquin territory. And according to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, there should not be any storage or disposal of toxic materials of any kind on Indigenous land without the free, prior, and informed consent of the Indigenous people. Well. And none of those adjectives work in this case. It's not free. It's not prior, because they were only told about this later on after the site had been selected. So there was no consultation about the siting of this particular waste dump, nor was there any consultation about alternatives. So we believe that this is a terrible mistake and one that future generations will curse us for. So this is really the problem. One point to clear up. Should something happen 
that compromises the safety of the containment? What, if any, waste retrieval plan is in place if something goes wrong down the line? There's no real waste retrieval plan, and that's another problem. The problem is that the waste inventory itself, although it's been enumerated in broad outline, the waste will not be packaged in such a way that those packages can be retrieved and repackaged if necessary. Also, some of the waste that's going into this mound is completely unnecessary to go there. For example, I mentioned the cobalt-60. Cobalt-60 represents 99% of the initial radioactivity, and actually it doesn't have to go into the mound at all. It only represents about two kilograms of material, and those two kilograms are all in readily packaged, they're already packaged in sealed sources. They could be stored in concrete vaults away from the river. There's absolutely no reason for them to go into the mound. If you take away the cobalt-60 and pretend it's not there, then the second most important element in the mound is tritium. Tritium is radioactive hydrogen, and it's very mobile, and it will readily escape into the Ottawa River in the form of radioactive water molecules. It turns out that the waste treatment facility they have has no ability to remove any of the tritium, nor does any of the municipal water treatment plants downstream. They don't have any ability to remove tritium from drinking water. So any tritium that escapes from the mound will go into the wetlands, drain into the Ottawa River untreated, and go into people's homes untreated. It seems crazy that the second most important uh, radioactive material should be such a mobile material, which again, could be stored for just a couple hundred years. It doesn't have a very, very long half-life. It's only 12.3 years, the half-life. But why should we put this in the mound knowing that it's going to end up in the Ottawa River? So there are many problems with the specific inventory. When you get into the long-lived materials, we have things like plutonium. Now, plutonium doesn't exist in nature, so it's not a natural contaminant of the soil. The only reason we have plutonium going into the waste is because we had a plutonium reprocessing plant at Chalk River, and this led to contaminated buildings. When they take those buildings down, the actual structures are contaminated with plutonium. Well, they don't have to put that stuff in the mound. When it's plutonium, which has a 24,000-year half-life, and which is one of the most toxic elements we know of, that should go into a separate facility, an underground facility, away from the river, as we have seen in other parts of the world. As you go through the list of radionuclides that are going into the mound, you see reasons why uh, this item or that item or the other item should not be going there at all. So what we have here is a case of reckless abandon. We have the uh, consortium, for its own convenience, putting things into the waste that don't have to go there. Now, granted, there are large amounts of contaminated soil. Contaminated soil could be stored, if it's lightly contaminated, it could be stored above ground. But when you have packages that you know are contaminated with things like plutonium, they should be excluded. So what we see here is a failure of the government and the administration, as well as the regulatory agency, to discriminate in favor of the population and the indigenous people. Rather, they're making their decisions to accommodate the industry. And it's, a, it's not even a Canadian industry. It's a, in this case, these are private companies who have been employed for this purpose. Two of them are Texas multinationals, Fluor and Jacobs. And by the way, these multinationals Every one of them, the three of them, 
they all have a history of legal problems having to do with fraud. And in many cases, they've been convicted of fraudulent behavior. So to put them in charge of this operation is highly questionable. With the First Nations being so vocal on their opposition to this, they have five principles of radioactive waste management that have been articulated by the Anishinaabek Iroquois Alliance of Indigenous People. What are those five principles? Actually, I don't have them in front of me right now, but the first principle is that uh, they should be kept away from the water. All Indigenous people regard water as the lifeblood of Mother Earth. It feeds all living things. And if you poison the lifeblood, then you poison really life itself. They believe that the first principle is to keep it away from water, which certainly doesn't apply for this particular case. The second one is to not to abandon it. You see, the problem with the word disposal, disposal has no scientific meaning. There is no definition of disposal that is scientific in nature. If you look at the definitions, it says that disposal means that we put the waste in a position where there is no intention to retrieve it. Well, that's a political definition, not a scientific definition. And so just because you don't want to retrieve it doesn't mean that that's safe. It doesn't mean that it even has meaning that is going to stay there simply because you don't want it to go anywhere else. So we don't believe that at the present state of knowledge, uh, and the Anishinaabek Iroquois Alliance says that we should not be abandoning this stuff. We should be keeping an eye on it. We should be packaging it in such a way that it can be repackaged and looked after by future generations. This means that the packages have to be very well labeled and instructions must be given to future generations as to what to do once it starts leaking, how to look after it. Because this is something that uh, is an intergenerational challenge. Another principle is not to import or export radioactive waste, but to try and manage it on site as much as possible. But if it's necessary to move it, for example, to move it away from a water system, then that should be done on the basis of consultation with those people who will be affected so that we can reach a consensus on what to do about it. So the whole idea here is that From the point of view of the industry, it's convenient for them to try and walk away from this waste. That way they can cut their liabilities and cut their responsibilities. But for the sake of future generations, we need to look after it. So it becomes really a societal problem. What the nuclear industry has done is created an enormous radioactive waste legacy, which is going to be around for countless generations. And this is a uh, a responsibility In our own self-protection, we citizens have to make sure that this is properly looked after. From another point of view, you could say that the wrong people are in charge of deciding these things, because the people who are in charge of deciding it are the very same people who produce the problem in the first place and who regards the waste primarily as a public relations problem rather than as a health and safety problem. I believe it's Tina Cordova, who's the founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders, which has been fighting for compensation for those who are harmed by the Trinity Blast, who pointed out that we are talking about radioactive waste that will be impactful for 7,000 generations. She did the math on that, which is a frightening number to consider. There is a concept called rolling stewardship. What is it and what would that consist of? Well, rolling stewardship is actually a term that was first coined by the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in the 20th century, around 1990. 
And it had to do not with radioactive waste, but with long-lived toxic waste of other kinds, such as heavy metals and so on, and PCBs and so on. And what they were saying is that uh, these are intergenerational challenges, and we have to think of it in those terms. So what we need to do is to set up an awareness within society that just as we have firemen to deal with fires that might break out, just as we have other emergency responders to deal with situations, we have to have a social structure which allows for intergenerational management of these wastes and keeping them out of the drinking water, keeping them out of the food chain, keeping them out of the environment. And that needs perpetual maintenance, not all the time. When we say perpetual, it doesn't mean you have to change things every single year. But perhaps every 20 years, there has to be a changing of the guard and a transmission of all the information and resources necessary to continue monitoring these wastes, which must be stored in such a way as to be retrievable and easily repackaged. And the same thing should go, we've applied that same principle, when I say we, that's the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, of which I'm the president, we believe that that same principle should be applied to radioactive materials. Because we do not have a solution, and that's the beginning of wisdom, is to say that we do not have a solution. A solution would mean that we know how to neutralize it or render it harmless. We don't know how to do that. There is no scientific principle which allows us to destroy this waste. Now, if there was a safe way, for example, of getting this waste material into the center of the sun, that would destroy it. But we don't know how to do that. When they send rockets up, they sometimes explode, they crash, they burn, and that would just spread the waste all over the world. So until we have an actual solution, we have a problem. And we have to recognize that that's a problem that does not have a solution. There are different ways of managing it. You can manage it above ground, you can manage it below ground, but that doesn't mean you can abandon it. Some are calling this site a glorified landfill for radioactive waste. And your group, Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility and two others, are asking the Canadian Federal Report to review this decision. Where is that initiative now and how is it supposed to proceed? What's happening right now is that a number of non-Indigenous groups are making an appeal to the federal court to annul the decision of the CNSC. On, and this can only be done on procedural grounds. In other words, in order to have this appeal heard, we have to argue that procedures were not followed, proper procedures. We mustn't revisit the actual evidence. There's no new evidence allowed. What we have to say is that the regulatory agency has not followed its own procedures. They have ignored many things. We have listed those things which are procedural errors, and there's about seven of them. And uh, we're hoping that the court will agree with us, in which case it would only mean that the court would rule that this decision was made on incorrect grounds, and therefore it has to be redone. So it would simply mean that the decision has to be revisited. It wouldn't mean that the project would be stopped, but it would be uh, paused while a better process is put in place. We're also appealing, however, to the federal government directly, saying that the federal government has a duty to respect the rights of Indigenous people, and they are ignoring that duty. And that consequently, they should not delegate that duty to the regulatory agency. They have a direct duty outlined by the Supreme Court of Canada to consult Indigenous people and to respect the treaties that establish their rights. 
So we believe that the federal government, on a completely different ground, not a legal ground, but a political ground, should intervene and say, we're going to stop this project because the rights of Indigenous people have not been respected. Now, we have a precedent for this because years ago, about 10 years ago, there was in Ontario, we have a large nuclear-based utility in Ontario, which has 11 nuclear reactors, and they have been wanting to find a site for their low and intermediate level waste. They chose a site near Lake Huron for a deep geological repository to put their low and intermediate level waste in, not on the surface, not a glorified landfill, but deep underground, which seems to be at least better than above ground. And they also, after years of hearings and discussion, when the local indigenous people who were called the Sogain Ojibwe Nation made it clear that they did not give their consent, Ontario Hydro, Ontario Power Generation at this time, said, okay, the project is canceled. You don't consent, we're not going to do it. Now, that's what the federal government should be doing. In other words, we have here a provincial utility, which is not bound by the Supreme Court ruling the way the federal government is to respect Indigenous rights. They're showing more respect for Indigenous rights by walking away from their plan than the federal government is showing. And we're asking the federal government to assume its responsibilities, stop abdicating its responsibility, and act to respect the rights of the Algonquins. And there is a third uh, appeal, a, a legal appeal, by the Algonquins and the other First Nations involved. This appeal is based solely on Indigenous rights and doesn't have to do with any procedural errors, but simply says our rights have not been respected. So there are basically three avenues of recourse that we're looking for right now. Two of them are legal, and one of them is political. A recent article you sent around stated that even as concerns persist about the radioactive waste disposal site, this mound next to the Ottawa River, this person in the article stated, all we can do is hope for the best. What do you have to say to that? Well, I think we can do a lot more than hope for the best. I think we can plan for the future. And planning for the future means rolling stewardship. It means recognizing that we do not have a permanent solution to this problem. And therefore, we have to bend over backwards to make sure that the siding is such that it does not endanger major water bodies, does not endanger major wildlife, and that the materials which is most long-lived is not stored on the surface. It should be stored in a much more secure location, deep underground. If something is only going to be dangerous for a couple of hundred years, it makes sense to store it properly. Don't allow it to leak. And it's feasible that we can look after it for a couple of hundred years. For longer-lived materials, they need to be stored more securely so they can weather vicissitudes, both natural and political. If we have a bad government, if we have a, a bad weather conditions, if we have earthquakes, if we have tornadoes, if we have floods, it should be able to withstand those things. An earthen dump, an earthen landfill perched beside the Ottawa River is hardly a harbinger of safety for the future. Is there anything else we haven't covered that you want to make certain we know about? Yes, I would like to point out that this is the first time in Canadian history that any permission has been given to permanently, essentially abandon man-made radioactive materials, human-made radioactive materials. These things do not exist in nature, most of them. 
Most of them were created as a result of the fission process. That means that these wastes are not as old as I am. I'm 83 years old. These wastes are younger than that. They didn't exist in nature before 80 years ago. So I think that we have to proceed in humility. We have to proceed with a sense of awareness that we're dealing with a brand new problem that no past generation of humans ever had to deal with. Also, we have to deal with the fact that this is going to be precedent setting. If we can do this in Canada, then every country around the world can say, hey, Canada did it. Why don't we just pile our radioactive waste up beside a river or a lake and just hope for the best? So hope for the best becomes the slogan of the future. That's hardly a good platform to rest our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren's future on. We have an obligation to future generations going forward for many, many countless thousands of generations, as you said before, and also to the indigenous people who looked after this land for many, many thousands of years going back into the past. So if we have respect for our own past and for our own future, then we know that this is not the right thing to do. I think that the full phrase is hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And the second half of that is not present in the current situation up in Canada. Is there anything that we can do to support you, be the listeners in Canada or any place else around the world? Support is always appreciated. And also the Canadian government often pays more attention to voices from outside the country than inside the country. We've seen this oftentimes in the case of literary figures, both in Canada and the States. You know that some of the most revered literary figures were first recognized outside the country before they were celebrated inside the country. Uh, thinking of people like Faulkner and Hemingway, who made a name for themselves in Europe and then became recognized and celebrated in the States. We've had the same experience with our writers. Well, the same thing goes with problems. Sometimes if people, if neighbors point out the problem, more attention is paid to it because we want to be good neighbors. And so any expression to the Canadian government of concern over the uh, failure to respect future generations, to respect the Ottawa River, and to respect the Indigenous people would be very welcome. Dr. Gordon Edwards, as I said at the beginning, it is always immensely informative and welcoming to have you on the program to bring us up to speed with the promise that we will stay in touch as things develop in Canada. I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby, very much. I appreciate it. Dr. Gordon Edwards. He has many articles and observations that he has posted on the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility website, ccnr.org, and we will link to it on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode number 661. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. It is with great sadness that we report the death of Mary Osborne, also known as Mary Stamos. She was a longtime member of Three Mile Island Alert. And after the nuclear accident, the meltdown in 1979, she gathered flowers, leaves, and plants that showed signs of mutations that revealed the negative impact of radiation on these plants' growth and reproduction. With the help of fellow TMI Alert member Scott Portsline, Mary's collection of Three Mile Island radiation plant mutations was submitted to and accepted by the Smithsonian Institution where it will be preserved, 
digitized, and made available to the public. An interview with Mary on her collection of the plant mutations, plus stories that never made it out from the Three Mile Island area but were well known to her, are part of an interview I did with her for Nuclear Hot Seat number 509, which I will link to on the website and which will also be part of this year's anniversary Three Mile Island program. She was 80 years old and will be dearly missed. But her work will live on as a digital database of the collection is slated to be added to the Three Mile Island Alert website, tmia.com, with images of the plants alongside information about exactly where and when each was collected. Specimens may also be made available to Smithsonian scientists and other researchers who wish to examine them for their relevance to the Three Mile Island event of 1979. Thank you, Mary. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. You deserve to not miss out on a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, and it's easy for you to do. You can sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel or cut to the chase in a way that will really help me out. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, you really can't miss it, put in your first name and email address, and every week you will get one email with the link to that week's show and a short description of its content. And by signing up through the website, you're on our database, which gets recognized by Google, which moves us up in the Google search engine. So make certain you get the show and then listen to it. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send that information to me in an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, always, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help and will appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2024, Libby Halevi, Nuclear Hot Seat, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, the website, and if you can fit in the names of the guests whose comments you use, or my name, it will be appreciated. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you, Radioactive nuclear waste is forever, which is why we need to stop making any more of it right now and figure out what in the world we're going to do with it. There you have it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.